Welcome to the John Chapman Show, where we talk about the path of a wealthy millennial, uncovering the truth about building and protecting your nest egg. Join us on this journey as we hear the stories of millennials and mentors alike to help you plan, manage, and protect your wealth. John is an employee of Worth Point LLC. All opinions expressed by John and podcast guests are solely their own opinion and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Worth Point. This podcast should not be relied upon for investment decisions and is for informational purposes only. Hi, Dr. Loretta Bruning. Thanks for joining me on the podcast. How are you? Great. Nice to be here. We're so excited to have you. Uh, Dr. Bruning, for those listening, is the author of The uh, Habits of a Happy Brain and the founder of the Inner Mammal Institute. And uh, you've done some fascinating research over the years about our own brain chemistry and how we're wired as humans and some of the, the evolution of us as mammals. So I'm excited for you to educate our listeners today. But before we do that, Dr. Bruning, can you give us a little bit of background about your career and how you ended up being the founder of Inner Mammal Institute? Sure. I was a professor of management for 25 years, and I was sort of frustrated about the motivation levels that I experienced around me, um, both on the part of my students and my own children, and the, my colleagues and their students and children. And so I lost confidence in the theories I'd been taught about motivation and started looking closer at the research. And I settled on the brain chemistry of animals because it was so surprising to me that our good feelings, our motivations come from brain chemicals that are the same in animals and are managed by the same brain structures. And yet they reward behaviors that make sense in the animal world and are, are totally parallel to the things that we care about in daily life, and yet they're all things we're told that we shouldn't care about. And it's so obviously sort of the truth of our deeper operating system. Yeah, I love the way that you put that, our deeper operating system. And something that you talk about on your website is the, you know, the mammal brain or areas of our brain that lack communication versus other parts of our brain. So I want you to share that in just a moment. But before we do, give us some deeper context. What are some of the prevailing thoughts that you, you kind of held to be true at one point as you were a professor about you know, our, our wiring? Sure. I call it niceism, which is the idea that if you're nice to other people, they'll be nice to you. So if you're nice to your students, they'll study. If you're nice to your kids, they'll study. And it's just not true. And it's, <laughs> but this is, this is the theory that, that is currently embraced and not against it. It would be nice if it worked. <laughs> if it's working for you, you know, knock yourself out. But it's so easy to see in the animal world that animals are not nice to each other. Mm. And if you're nice to an animal after it behaves badly, you get more bad behavior. <laughs> you know, the simple example, you know, if you're if an animal jumps on the table and you're like, oh, he feels left out, let's give him a cookie. You know, you know where I'm going with this. Yeah, indeed. Okay, so I imagine that took a level of risk on your part. Now, yes. uh, no doubt, a lot of hard work. So, uh, tell me about some of the early days as you were um, doing some own research and you founded the Inner Mammal Institute. What were those early days like? Well, frankly, uh, this is why I admire entrepreneurs because I was not really taking 
that kind of full risk because I was allowed to take early retirement with my title. I took it at a very young age, so I only got a small percentage of my total compensation, but my husband was cool with that. So I and my kids had just, you know, the last one went to college. So I was not in a position of, of having everything on the line. So I really empathize with people who do that. So in my case, it was like, okay, I have worked hard all my life. I'm just going to do whatever I feel like. And so re-educating myself was what I felt like doing. And I didn't do it with the eye to what's popular. Once I started focusing on communicating this as my top priority, I have to say that I failed and failed and failed. And so that's that's the other story. And then I, I have to say I was more like an entrepreneur because I failed a lot of times and just kept writing another book. Mm-hmm. And when things finally started to work, it was not with a, an analytical approach to what works. And each time a small thing worked that I never would have predicted, and then another small thing worked that I never would have predicted. So I'm not a big fan of the analytical approach because I can never figure out or anticipate what would work. And I know that people are pressured to come up with that, but I wonder if it's a crapshoot because my life in social science suggested Mm. that this analytical approach is, is not always honest. Well, it's fun to hear that. And I imagine that many can uh, relate to that. I know I certainly can as part of the entrepreneurial journey. And it's funny, I I used to take that word failures to be so literal. Um, But, you know, failing can be fun as so long as you understand of what it leads to, which is so many of these fun paths and now that you've been down. So I think that's the way the way I the way I talk about it is if you put an iron in the fire, then, you know, in 100 days, you'll have 100 irons in the fire. And every day, one of them will heat up, but you can't predict which one. So you just have to focus on putting another iron in the fire. That's a great, great attitude that you have. I really like it. And I guess if shifting to think about that sort of process of putting yourself out there can be fearful. And one of the things that I love from your website is you, you talk a little bit about how you have the responsibility. We have the, resp- the, the responsibility uh, over our own brain when we have the ability to make changes to it. And But we've also, we're, we're designed to promote survival rather than happiness. So I think from the get-go, talk to us a little bit about some of the way that we're wired uh, for survival, not happiness. Because I want to feel happy all the time. I want to feel good. I don't want to feel stress on Sunday night. I want to be able to enter into my work day and go into sales meetings uh, feeling just happy and cozy. But that, that, that's not how it always works, does it? But there's science behind it. So tell us about that. So our brain defines survival in a quirky way. And that's why we do quirky things to stimulate our happy chemicals. So first, our brain defines survival with neural pathways built from past experience. So if you could imagine that you touch a hot stove or you know, in caveman days, a little cave baby touches fire. And that hurts. And that builds a huge pathway where you don't need language, you don't need lots of analysis to say, whoa, I'm not going to touch fire again. So we are all wired by our past pain. And what makes us different from animals is the human cortex can anticipate future consequences. So anything that hurt us in the past, 
we anticipate that so we could avoid it. And anything that rewarded us in the past, we seek it so we can expect more happy chemicals from it. But when I say the past, it's your childhood that builds the superhighways in your brain because that's when neuroplasticity is higher. So there you are in your difficult meeting or your meeting planning on Sunday night, but the reward seeking that you're wired for is whatever rewarded you when you're a child, a child and an adolescent. So that's why we're sort of biased. Our brains are all biased to focus on the rewards and pain that was relevant in our past. Well, that's uh, another important call to action for those that haven't gone through a delicate process of counseling. And I, I've been through that in my my uh, recent years, just as being a young dad and an entrepreneur. But um, there's a lot of those conversations about, you know, thinking about life during the puberty years. But I think the way you described it, maybe in another uh, YouTube video or either phone conversation for us, is that it's almost as if it's uh, muscle tissue that gets strengthened. And then there's some scar tissue there. If you were to break it down, it's in, it's incredibly difficult, but also potentially painful to do that. And so, tell us a little bit more about like uh, I guess let's start with what are some of the uh, happy chemicals or the the good and bad chemicals in our brains that we should be aware of, and then we can talk about maybe some other action items of of how we can make changes to those those pathways. Sure. So the happy chemicals that I focus on are dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin, and endorphin. And these are all explained in my books in great detail. And then on my website, I have lots of free resources to learn about them free and quickly. And if you don't like to read, there's lots of non-reading resources. So um, dopamine is the expectation of a reward. So when a, a monkey wakes up in the morning, it's hungry and it will starve unless it does something to get food. And dopamine is the good feeling that's released when a monkey sees fruit in the distance. Hmm. And the reward feeling is, I can get that and it will meet my needs. Hmm. So you could see how in the work world and in the home world, it's the good feeling that's stimulated when you have the expectation that something will meet your needs and you can get it. So, and you can get it with small steps. So from a monkey perspective, each step closer to the, to the banana stimulates more dopamine. But once the monkey finally has the banana, the dopamine stops. And that's how our brain is designed to work. So when your dopamine stops, when you get that big goal, it's nothing wrong with you, nothing wrong with the world. It's not a disease. That's how our brain is designed to work because in the state of nature, there was no refrigerator and there was no supermarket. So funny. I think I want to pause on this, and um, and and it makes me think of a actually a recent uh, conversation I had. But thinking in the context of financial planning, or even aside from this specific uh, context, you read articles where people will achieve a, a level of a goals, or they reach a financial success, and you know the it's the anticipation of that you're saying that provided some of the excitement and the dopamine. But then you've achieved the level, you reach the net worth number or you reach the banana and all of a sudden I'm not feeling so happy. So I'm thinking, what, the, what, what gives? I thought I was supposed to feel happy. I reached my number. Yes. And once you know that that's absolutely natural, then you could sort of be prepared to replace it with a new goal that you've thought consciously about rather than this automaticity mm -hmm. that I use of like, 
if you read the tabloids and the person who wins the Academy Award is now in the dumps and they are just obsessed with getting the next big thing. And you can probably notice people who destroy themselves by seeking the next big thing. But when you understand your goal for that, you can possibly like pivot and focus on a different reward so that you don't take increasing risks. Because frankly, our brain habituates to any reward we have, which is why running water doesn't make us happy <laughs> because mm. that need for water is now filled. So it does take new and improved to feel good. But when we know that, we can seek new and improved in a safe way. I love that. I want to continue on if I can, because you've gotten some some short snippets of definitions for these all. So yeah. uh, can we continue on serotonin, yes. oxytocin, and endorphin? Share with yes. us how, how do those chemicals interact with our brains? Okay. So oxytocin is often called the love chemical or the bonding hormone. And people romanticize and idealize, especially in today's theoretical world, this idea of social support, which has its pros and cons because idealizing it often leads to frustration because people may think a herd of animals is like, oh, we all support each other. But in reality, animals in a herd are pushing toward the center so the other individual is more likely to get eaten by a predator. So, so when you're in a herd and you feel like, hey, you guys, you're just out for yourselves and I'm going to get eaten by a predator, so now I'm going to push my way to the center. Yeah, this is what mammals do. And like, why do I put up with this? Because when I leave the herd, my mammal brain tells me I'm about to get eaten by a predator. So when you leave the herd, when you're isolated, your oxytocin falls, when you go back towards safety and numbers, that stimulates your oxytocin and touch and trust are like nobody consciously says, oh yeah, I want to follow the crowd, but mm -hmm. it's touch and trust that stimulates our oxytocin that rewards us for seeking safety and numbers, but then it frustrates us. And the fascinating example is in the monkey world, monkeys groom each other. And these are reciprocal alliances. But what happens when you're in, in a reciprocal alliance is sometimes you groom them and they don't groom you back. Sometimes you groom them and then they expect you to put your life on the line for them and then they don't put their life on the line for you. So all of these primate social entanglements are very frustrating, but we do it for the oxytocin. That's so funny. And that makes me think... Um maybe more in lines of like friendship groups and wanting to kind of push towards the center. I like that visual picture of where you're pushing toward the center for, for comfort, but you know, it's, it's stemmed potentially from a little bit of fear of being eaten on the outside. I think something else that you brought up before too, is that just simply being aware of that, you realize, you know, we're, we're not going to actually be eaten if you are on the outside. And maybe that brings a little bit of comfort, uh, you know, for our human brain. Exactly, <laughs> our exactly, world. exactly. Exactly. Tell us about serotonin. So serotonin is what I call the one-up feeling. So this is the most taboo of all of them, especially today. And there was a century of research in, in the 20th century. People studied animals and saw that they're very hierarchical. So you've heard the concept of pecking order. And this is like a real physical thing in the state of nature. 
And the mammal brain rewards you with a good feeling when you raise your social position, because in the animal world, it improves the survival prospects of your genes. How it does that, I'll, and, um, you can ask your mother or, um, <laughs> or um, my books explain it, and my book, I Mammal, explains it in depth. And in the modern world, it's taboo to say, I feel good when I raise myself in the pecking order. And to say, I feel like my survival is threatened when someone else is raised in the pecking order. And so all of this, we don't take responsibility for the way we're creating these feelings ourselves. And thus we project it onto others and we say that they are judging us. But the minute we realize that social comparison is something our mammal brain is constantly doing both cognitively and chemically, then we can find our power to do it in different ways rather than just automatically doing it in the ways that got wired in, in what I call high school brain. High school brain. I love that you bring that up because I think uh, the, the kind of the judging aspect of it, of wanting to improve your career and rise in the corporate ladder, there's a lot of positioning, posturing that may happen inside the, the corporation and whatnot. And, and it's easy to project, but I, I guess I had never heard about it from a, a pure chemical standpoint that in some ways there it's it's you know, it may not be the most productive thing, but in some ways I'm hardwired to be able to do that purely just based out of survival, you know? So it's not, yeah, yeah it's, I don't know. It's not just a modern aspect, I should say. Yes. And it's not evidence that something is wrong with your company or with our society or your approach. And when you say something in a meeting and you don't get the response that you anticipated, your giant human cortex can think of like the whole chain of negative <laughs> results. And it feels like your survival is threatened. And the safer you are in other aspects of your life, the more energy you have left to project all of these terrible consequences. Because if you actually had a bad life, then you'd be focusing on that. And oh this gosh. is what we do to ourselves when we don't understand our own brain. Well, that, that makes me think just we are so comfortable and we have so many things that we forget, like you brought up earlier, running water. And so that's just not a task that I have to worry about. And so my brain is spending time focusing on other things, one of which is the thousand of illogical ways that I could be one-upped by a coworker. And that's just, you know, that, that's where my brain goes because I have the time and space to occupy it that way. So yes. that's so funny. And, and so tell us a little bit about endorphin, or, uh, oxytocin. Yeah. Uh, no, we did oxytocin. Uh, I, did, I did it out of order because oxytocin is socially acceptable and serotonin is not socially acceptable. Excuse so me. I get the acceptable on it out of the way first. Yeah. <laughs> so endorphin is the one that most people have heard of because runner's high was one of the first of these chemical responses that was widely reported. But in fact, it's the one that we are not really meant to chase because endorphin is triggered by real physical pain. And in the state of nature, so endorphin masks pain with a good feeling, with a euphoric feeling, so that an animal can run and save its life even when it's badly injured. But in 15 minutes, 
the good feeling is worn off because we need to feel our pain in order to protect our injuries. So it's only meant for emergencies, but it feels so good that a person might be tempted to inflict pain on themselves in order to seek it. So runners only get high if they run to the point of pain. And this is obviously a very bad survival strategy. So I'm always very emphatic in explaining how we're not meant to seek it and we're meant to just have it for emergencies and to seek the others. Oh my gosh, I'm laughing so much and being an athlete too, like yes. uh, the runner's high is something that's so commonly talked about. And But I didn't realize that that was a mask of potential pain underlying. You know, I ran uh, I ran three miles today, but tomorrow, you know, my three miles didn't feel so good. So I'm going to go to five miles, but then I'm my, my legs are wrecked for an entire week. Exactly, exactly. And it's such a common impulse. And you could think of even worse behaviors than that which are tempting people to stimulate a good feeling when the normal, when, when the thing you did yesterday doesn't do it for you anymore. Mm. And that's how the brain works. It's called habituation. And the good thing that I always emphasize is small steps to release small amounts of these chemicals are what our brain evolved to do. So we'd really rather have this big burst because we remember that big burst of the past. But in the state of nature, when you look for food, it was soon digested and you had to look for food again. So it's those constant small steps that are meant. So a little bit of endorphin is stimulated by laughing and then it's gone. And then you can look for some more humor in something again. So I want to make sure to talk about habits and uh, understanding how we can possibly more in the context of breaking poor habits. And uh, let's say there's a stress on Sunday night and that leads you to have one extra beer, but you know you're not supposed to or whatever the other activity is. You, you and some of your YouTube videos bring up just smoking, but you can interchange that with whatever your, your habit is. So it's, you know, on the one hand, we hear that it takes a certain number of consecutive days to start a new habit. Habit. But it just seems like it's harder to uh, break out of the, you know, the, the, the late night beer on Sunday night than just doing something different for 20 days. So how can we mix it up and just start rewiring our brain for more positive habits? Sure. So a habit is the expectation of a reward and an expectation is a real physical pathway. So we are always using the physical pathways we have just the way you drive your car on the roads that exist rather than just trying to drive your car in a straight line to where you're going. So we are all born with billions of neurons, but very few connections between them. So the roads we build in our brains are created in youth because we have a lot of neuroplasticity then, which means we have a lot of myelin, which is a chemical that uh, insulates neurons and makes them super efficient. So we all use our old neural pathways, not because we're lazy, but because they're more efficient. And this is why you could, for example, drive a car and carry on a conversation at the same time because you're driving with your myelinated neurons. So we all have this autopilot and our emotions are wired with myelinated neurons from our early experience with rewards and pain. So what's going on on Sunday night is all of the patterns from your past. So the first one would be you're thinking about 
Monday morning. And one thing, of course, is possible things that could go wrong. But another is your hopes for reward. But how did you get rewards in, in the past? Well, let's say if you're a responsible person listening to this podcast, maybe you were told, oh, you got to be prepared. So what does it mean to be prepared is as soon as you do one thing to prepare, then you got to worry about the next thing that might go wrong and the next and the next. And what I say in my mammal was like, I was trained in, it was called TQM then total quality management, which is mm. like, you have to always obsess over the next thing that might go wrong and um, eliminating defects and chasing that potential bug. So you've never done enough. You're always vulnerable to criticism. And I found in myself that feeling of you've never done enough, then what do you do to relieve that bad feeling? So what you do is anything that worked in your past. Mm. So for one person, it's this, and for another person, it's that. But whatever it is, it's a real physical pathway that's the expectation of a reward. And the only solution is to build a new physical pathway. So my solution is what I tell myself is I've done enough. Now, another person might do it a different way, but I've decided that that's what my inner mammal needs to hear at some point is, okay, I've done enough. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of like if you're a gazelle on the savanna and you're looking for predators, but if you only look for predators, you would never eat and you'd never starve to death. So at some point the gazelle says, okay, I've looked, now I've done enough, I'm gonna eat. So, but you can't just shove ice cream in your face. You can't just shove, you know, alcohol in your face. So what can you do? Well, one thing is you could tell yourself, I've done enough, but at first you're not going to believe it. Yes. So, <laughs> so maybe if you combine that with some other positive thing. So what is that other positive thing that you're longing to have? Mm. And you could give it to yourself. Like for many people, let's say some secret guilty pleasure, it's not a horribly harmful thing, but something you could do for 10 minutes. So I'm gonna, so I use always the example of listening to, to comedy. Okay. So I'm gonna tell myself I've done enough and listen to comedy for a half hour mm. or 10 minutes or whatever works for you instead of the old bad habit. There you go. Yeah. So replacing it is, uh, you know, with something like the comedy is uh, a worthwhile endeavor, you're saying. Yes. And it will build a new pathway if you repeat it. But at first, you're going to say, I'd rather have a beer. I really haven't done enough. And you got to be really careful to pick positive comedy because a lot of comedy is rather bitter. So find the, the mix that works for you and then repeat it and you'll build positive expectations and then you'll look forward to Sunday night. Another thing that you've talked about is uh, maybe in an effort to not take things for granted is maybe walking backwards or reading while standing up. So tell us a little bit about some ways where we can just break up some normal processes so that we can continue to feel a sense of like, uh, I don't know, enjoyment from some of our just normal day-to-day -day activities. Sure. Well, let's talk about the most challenging one, which is social comparison. So the simple example, like your brain is always comparing yourself to others because in the animal world, if you didn't do that, 
you would just go and reach for a banana in front of a bigger gorilla and then you'd get bitten and that would be bad for your survival. So I could tell you not to compare yourself to others, but you're still going to do it. So what would be a new way to respond to it instead of just automatically responding the way you responded in high school? And the reason I say high school is because mile and peaks in high school. So that's when we built the super highways in our brain. So how can I wire in another response to social comparison? So the answer is I can consciously with my adult brain choose another response and then repeat it and maybe combine that with a cookie or a chocolate to, to link it to a positive feeling. So what would be an example of a positive, uh, of a, um, a different response? So the cliche is to imagine that people are saying bad things behind your back. So an alternative would be to imagine that people are saying good things behind your back, which is very hard to do, in fact. It's very right? hard to do, yeah. Yes. I don't think I've ever once imagined someone saying positive things behind my back. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But you know what? I bet they are. And I'll give you the, the most amazing example of this. When I give a talk, one day I realized that my eyes would settle on the person who looked, who was like scowling. And I noticed like, it's not that the whole audience is scowling, but I end up focusing on the scowling person. Like, oh, that's so why silly. am I doing that? And it's like, it's so obvious from my childhood to see why I was doing that. But once you focus on the scowling person, you don't even notice the other people. So now I've made a habit of focusing on the person who's smiling and then looking for, now you can't like, a, a person can make a fetish out of this and like anxiously, like, oh my God, are they smiling? Are they smiling? You know, like the over desire to please. It's like, no, it's just to find one person who's smiling and focus on that, period. Well, that's, that's a great example, yeah. Uh, well, there's a ton of really great information here, and uh, I've certainly enjoyed reading some of your books and YouTube videos, but uh, what are some of the best ways that people can find your content, Dr. Bruning, and engage with what you've spent so much work on? Thanks. Well, my website is innermammalinstitute.org. And it describes all of my books and gives samples and lots and lots of other information. I have a series of funny YouTube videos and um, lots of blogs and podcasts and a two-minute animation. And I have resources for special needs like parenting and anxiety. Mm, well, super valuable. I really appreciate you, Sharon. Before we wrap up for today, is there anything else or any sort of uh, encouragement or call to action for my folks that are working in a corporate job and they, they, they hear some more, uh, certainly a lot more negative thoughts than positive thoughts inside their head all day long? Um, some other thoughts on what resources or activities they should be aware of? Sure. My second book in this series, it's called The Science of Positivity. So it's about how to create positivity, whether or not the rest of the world does. Okay. So the idea is that we tend to go negative 
And the current thinking is often that the whole organization has to go positive before you go positive. And people are so often trained, well, I can't do this because our society this and our society that and our organization this and that. It's like, no, if you wait for the herd to do this, you may never do it. But you can go positive whether the herd goes positive or not. And they may even look askance at you for going positive. And you know what? You could do it anyway, and it's worth it. And that's what separates you from animals is that your big cortex can think separately from the herd. And so you have billions of extra neurons to do this with, and you can start hooking them up. I love that. Super encouraging. And yeah, you can separate yourself from your herd. And actually, there's a lot uh, to look forward to in that. So that's actually a good point about the opportunity that's there. So, well, Dr. Burning, thanks again. It's been uh, super quick, but we've covered a lot of ground. And I appreciate so much your expertise and your time. So hope to be able to chat with you again in future. Thanks for being here. Great. Thanks for having me. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to The John Chapman Show. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or Spotify. We encourage your questions, comments, and feedback. For additional information, check out thejohnchapmanshow.com or look for John on LinkedIn and Twitter. See you next week.